Before we start this podcast, I want to give a shout out to our label sponsor of the month, Past Inside the Present. Located in Indianapolis, Indiana, and not even a year old, Past Inside the Present has already racked up an insanely packed lineup of artists from across the world, including some of the best ambient artists making music today. They've released music by Forest Management, La Verre, Ian Hoggood, Jack Hyde, and a massive 4LP set by Montreal-based drone master Kyle Bobby Dunn. This record is amazing and features contributions from Benoit Poulard, Lucille, Pan American, Isaac Helson, and so many more. Pick it up at their site, passinsidethepresent.com, or on their Bandcamp page. Hello, this is Madeline from Midwife. David Nance. Seth Graham. Kiaville. Mike from Uniform. Lee Noble. Braden J. sort of like religious tradition uh i grew up lutheran okay and uh you're I, from Mich- minnesota minnesota okay so the other mc people yeah, do yeah. that all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh minnesota and so being lutheran in minnesota especially i grew up in the elca senate so it's like <sighs> i'm pretty sure my pastor was was um, gay and like it was pretty open for the 90s anyway and like uh, very very like in my confirmation classes we learned about um, yeah in my confirmation classes we learned about like we had one week dedicated to every world religion stuff like that so it was it was very very open-minded okay as far as churches go mm-hmm. but yeah i have no connection to the quakers okay other than i just I, I really had no idea about who they were or what their whole deal was until i started working at wilmington college yeah and so what has it been like um working amongst the quakers <laughs> are, are, are they are like most it's, of the faculty and no, students no actually oh. um it's really interesting so it's like it's a school that was founded by the quakers and you would think that it would draw in a big quaker population but it actually it actually doesn't other than um the people who are kind of local who have grown up going to the friends meeting um and then choose to go to wilmington college there's like very very few people mm. like this but and there's a few faculty members who are friends but most of them are just yeah just typical like ohio people sure sure you know so my experience the, the reason why i kind of laughed when um like my experience of going to it was driving up i was like i like glimpsed my future you know there was just like a bunch of like uh hybrid cars with like <laughs> Uh, and the Iraq war, um, like, uh, 
gore, uh, you know, like gore stickers yes. on the back. And then I get there and it's just like a bunch of like really, really nice older people sitting in silence, which is cool. Um, but uh, afterwards, I, w- I had mentioned, like we were talking, what brought you to Cincinnati? And I mentioned the Peace Corps and we were just like... I was in the Peace Corps. I was in they the Peace Corps. Yes, of course they were. Yes. And so I was just like, oh my God, this is like, <laughs> this is like too soon. This is like, I, I could probably do this like when I'm like in my like 60s, but I, I was like staring down like my, my, my future and like my, like came to grips with like reality, <laughs> you know, like age is a thing. Like I'm going to be old one day. Yeah. Going to these Quaker meetings, yes. driving a you know driving a hybrid with so like a crunchy, yeah, oh, totally, <laughs> yeah. And so my friends in Bellingham, like you know, oh yeah, makes t- total sense. Yes, yes. <laughs> what did you say? You went to a, a commitment ceremony? No, uh, like a friend ceremony. Oh, okay. Yeah, so just okay. like the um, I think I don't even know if that's what they're called, but like the regular gatherings that they have on Sunday. Yeah. So you like sit in silence. Um, right. Like there's like it's like very churchy, you know. Like you have like announcements like oh you know next week we're having a potluck and so and so graduated from college mm-hmm. and then you sit in silence mm-hmm. for like an hour. And then um, I think some people, I don't know if this is like true across the board, but like if you feel called upon, you can speak. And usually it's just like people talking about what's going on in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice. And then there's a the nice potluck afterwards, like yeah. a lot of vegan options. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, so like, I think different friends meetings have different styles. So I have actually played piano for mm, a friends meeting, nice. which is nice, but not the usual. Like I think typically the traditional Quaker value would be no music. Sil- yes. Yeah, silence is like a important thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's actually been really interesting teaching music at a Quaker founded school mm. because, um, the Quaker values are, are so much focused on simplicity and silence and openness and music is designed to break silence. <laughs> right. So is there, does, does Quakerism have like much of a musical history or is it like, it's just like coming in from the outside? Honestly, I feel like a complete outsider, but I, at the same time as I say that I haven't researched it at all. Like okay. There could be a really sure. rich tradition that yeah. I'm just not aware of. I know there's that song, Tis a Gift to be Simple. Yes. I think if that well, if that's, that's not the, a Quaker song, then that's like gotta be like a Yes. Their theme well song. it's a shaker hymn and oh. I think shakers are different than Quakers. Yeah. Do you know about the Shakers? Not very much, no. So the Shakers um were kind of in that same religious movement. Um but they there was like they taught like strict abstinence. Oh. And really good furniture making. So they were like <laughs> really, really good at making chairs, not great at like reproducing the religion. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think there's any more shakers like maybe there are but like that's not something you're born into it's like something you gotta like and it's a hard sell you know okay. <laughs> yeah you don't make it sound like yeah. yeah like that's the two things I know neither of them are attractive <laughs> In the hymn, in the hymn, tis a gift. Well, yeah, I guess that that that's a hook mm-hmm. that, that that draws you in. Like, mm-hmm. wow, I you know came for the hymns, stayed for lifelong abstinence. Yeah, I honestly, I don't think people would even really know that these days if it wasn't for um, Aaron Copeland using it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've heard that. Like, I mean, he like gives it a lot of like. It's in. Um, 
Oh, I'm going to say this wrong. I think it's in Rodeo, his ballet Rodeo. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's what he uses it in. Yeah. In a, in a beef commercial. Maybe. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that is where the music for the beef commercial comes from. It's from Rodeo. Yeah. Or Rodeo, whatever. R- rodeo. <laughs> Copeland's an American, so... Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's Rodeo. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So tell me a little bit... Um, about so you grew up in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your first experiences um, with music? What drew you? Was piano your first instrument or your only instrument, or um, what drew you to playing music? Yeah, so um, I grew up um, in really small towns, and my mom uh, was for a period of time the band director at the local schools. Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, like high school band mm-hmm. director. Yeah, yeah. And so I grew up with a musical mom. We always had a piano in the house. Um, and like we, the main thing that we did with my mom when we were kids is we sang with her. Mm-hmm. And so, and so you I remember. You and your siblings? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm the oldest of four. And my sister and I are only a year and a half apart. And like oh, a lot okay. of my early memories with her are of singing. She was, she had um, just like stacks and stacks of, of tapes of children's songs and we would just cycle through mm-hmm. them you know whether we're in the car we're at home or just always singing and is this like something you did like as a family like saturday nights we're like no no not nearly that picture okay <laughs> no no i wouldn't say it was like that it was just like uh what we as kids were like naturally drawn to as something to do i think me especially um, it was just what I always loved mm-hmm. to do. And so, like, people ask me, well, when did you start playing the piano? And I can tell you the story that my mom has told me about okay. when I started playing piano, but I don't remember. Okay. Like, I, do, I don't have any memories of not being able to play the piano. Okay. So, um, what's the story your mom tells you? Or tells of you? Uh, so, I was a super, like, independent kid. I always wanted to figure out how to do things on my own. So, like, I taught myself to read when I was, like, okay. three and a half. And um, we had the piano. And so she got me, like, a, a, it's called a primer level, like, level one piano book. Um, you know, the ones where the notes are so big that they have to be horizontal <laughs> right, right. Yeah. instead of vertical. Um, and she, like, gave it to me and, like, kind of showed me a few basic things. But I basically, like, read the book and when I was five and, like, wow. taught myself how and to so play you, the first you figured book. out what like those those notes were and yeah. how they called Yeah, because I could read the words. Okay, so I just yeah, yeah. would read the ex- explanation and be like, mm. oh, okay, it's like this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I think she kind of like helped me figure out a few of the early things. And and then if I got stuck on something, I think she would kind of try to help me. But I probably very stubbornly was like, mm, screw you, mom. I can do this myself. <laughs> um, yeah. And so then after, uh, I guess that was like, ages five and six and then when I got around seven or eight I started piano lessons okay so you started piano lessons and was it just kind of already having that like musical knowledge um was it something you kind of immediately excel at yeah 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 absolutely it's like I've never I've never questioned my identity as a pianist like it's 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 always been something that like and also this could come from me growing up in small towns too, but I've always kind of thought of myself as, oh, I'm the piano girl, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's not, I have questioned my career as a pianist, sure. but I've never questioned being a pianist. So uh, being a uh, pian- pianist, 
Yeah, I say it that way on purpose. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I've never heard anybody like pronounce it like that. I'm into it. Um, is that separate than an identity as a musician? Um, yes, absolutely. In what ways? Oh, that's a big question, Ryan. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, being a pianist is different than being a musician. Um, the biggest way I could answer that, like the most all-encompassing, is that I think of being a pianist as being a technician first. Like, that's the primary um, role that I have been trained to play as okay. a pianist, is as a technician. Explain to me, like, what, what that means, being a technician. Um, like, a, the sort of craftsman identity. Okay. Um, where... There's like a right way and a wrong way. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a right oh, way and a wrong okay. way to do things. Yeah. Um, and things can be executed at a very high level that are like technically correct and technically perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, when I think about my training as a pianist, so much of it was spent drilling scales and arpeggios, Mm -hmm. learning chord progressions, um, and just building all of these um, literally like physical, technical skills into my body Mm -hmm. so that I could reproduce them on like perfectly on command. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the, the, like the theory behind like notes on a scale, like came pretty easily to you, but the technical side of just drilling like that down into like your muscle memory yeah, is maybe something that like makes that identity a little bit different in your mind. Yeah. I mean, and it's not because that's, um, how, how I want to see pianists. It's just, Mm -hmm. I think how, how the piano world treats itself. Mm. Um, and then there is like this beautiful creative artistic side to being a pianist too. Um, but it has to always pile on top of that. Um, technique. If you don't have that solid technique, you're not going to be the kind of pianist that I was trained to be. Got it. Um, and this is this is coming out of like the world of classical music. Like that's mm-hmm. how I was trained. That's how I was brought up, and and that's how they think about musicians. It's it's almost like dogmatic, right? Like it's mm. it's you must you must perfect your technique, and that is the basis upon which artistry is built. So growing up, um, who were some of the, who were like pianists that you looked up to that you thought like, I want to play like that. Like Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to like master what they, like the level of proficiency that they're at. Yeah. Uh, I like this question too. Like, because our childhoods were like in the nineties. Right. Yeah. And, and so like being a, 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 a kid who's into music in the nineties, like the way that you've like fangirl or fan fanboy about stuff is, is, is totally different than it is now. Like you can't just hop on YouTube and be like, Oh my yeah. God, I'm obsessed. With Those you. limited means really allowed you to really drill down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, and so like I, um, especially because I was living in such a small town world, looking back, I don't remember having a piano idol mm-hmm. beyond, um, the students who were in my studio with my teacher mm. who were older than me. 
Like I would look at them and be like, yeah, I want to be like that girl. Like every year at the piano recital that my teacher would have in May, she'd have all the seniors in her studio um, wear their um, prom dresses or their prom tuxedos and they'd like play a special solo. Mm -hmm. It'd be like this big moment. My little nine-year-old eyes were like gaga over these people. Those were my idols. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't really get exposed to the world of classical music or have um, any like real classical piano idols until I was a teenager. Okay. Yeah, like I didn't see a live symphony orchestra perform until I was 16. Hmm. And what was that like for you, seeing that for the first time? freaking bonkers. Yeah. Where, where, Where was it? Oh, Minneapolis. Okay, so the big city. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It And it was like, it was, I very specifically planned a day to drive with um, a friend of mine and this is like a two hour drive to get to Minneapolis. And so we had to like very specifically like buy tickets and we went to dinner. It was this super special day. Which is so cool when you're 16. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. it was such a cool experience. But like, um, no, I like it's, 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 it's interesting. You're asking me this question about like, who are my idols? And it's interesting. You're asking me this question about kind of, um, like hearing this orchestra for the first time because this all these experiences for me like not having a specific piano idol and not hearing an orchestra until I was 16 it comes out of that small town upbringing Mm -hmm. you know yeah um and because because there just was not we were two hours away from the biggest city to go to a movie theater you had to drive 45 minutes you know like it was like really small um and and so um I don't know I've always I've always had like this really complicated relationship with that upbringing as a musician in one sense it was really nice to be the piano girl in town and I I will never let go of that part of my identity but in another sense uh I have felt a bit of like an inferiority complex coming into college and grad school and my professional career not having had those experiences. You'd be amazed at um, the kind of reactions I've gotten from people when I tell them I didn't hear a live orchestra till I was 16. They're horrified. Right, right. You know, it's like, what do you mean you haven't seen Austin Powers? It's like that. <laughs> yeah, kind of- <laughs> which is unforgivable. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you grew up in the 90s. <laughs> So being the piano girl, so would that be something akin to like some, I'm trying to like, going back to the shakers. (laughs) No, if you were like, if you were like the expert craftsman, you know, in town making beautiful, like, uh, ornate, um, tables and chairs mm-hmm. um and that's what people knew you as you know there's you could buy you know chairs at walmart or whatever but like if you wanted to like really make you know a statement or you know you 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 really appreciated that craft you would go to that person mm-hmm. or is it a little or is it like the star of the football team you know what i mean the person oh. who like um also had like an innate knack and talent and Mm -hmm. watching them 
you know, it could have moments of like brilliance, you know, like, you know, improvise, unscripted, um, like really like their talent, like excelled above everybody else. Is it either or, or is it a combination of both? Cause you are performing. I mean, Absolutely. part of that is a performance aspect. Uh, for me, it sits somewhere between the two. I love that you brought up those two examples because um, the person making furniture um, is completely unseen. Mm -hmm. And the thing that is seen is the product. Mm -hmm. And um, the high school quarterback football star is like they are the product. Right, like right, right, the, right. The product is them. It's yeah. embodied in them. Mm -hmm. And so performing as a craftsman, um, you are giving, you're giving of yourself. I was always taught to view performance as, um, uh, that you're giving music to the audience as a gift. Mm -hmm. It's an act of generosity. Mm. Um, and to, to treat the audience with like the utmost respect and consideration. Mm. Um, I was, when I would go through performance anxiety, one thing that was always reiterated to me over and over is you have this gift and you owe it to the world to mm. put it out there. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that, that part of it, I think is more along the lines of the craftsman mm -hmm. idea. But then at the same time, there's this ego driven part of me. And I think of most performing sure. musicians that yeah. just like really likes to be in front of people. Well, you, you mentioned like seeing those girls like in their prom dresses, like playing these like yeah. pieces and like, that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other pianist I remember, uh, just like even knowing about growing up mm -hmm. was Lori line. Do you know about Lori mm -hmm. line? Oh my God. This is such a Minnesota thing, but she, she's one of those pianists, like kind of new agey. She'll, she'll, um, Oh, now you're talking my language. <laughs> she, she'll like take a, a, a Broadway song, like from Les Mis and like arrange it for beautiful piano. Mm -hmm. And she'll, she tours and she has like this whole, um, like a huge white grand piano mm -hmm. and lighting and lasers and fog machines and all of this. And, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, she's beautiful, and she yeah, had, yeah. she she she's from Minnesota, and so okay. that's like how I knew who she was. Laura Lane. Lori Line. Lori Line. Yes, look her up. Yeah, <laughs> still doing her thing. Well, that's yeah, that's uh, that's really fast. I don't think um, coming from a place of ego in in the performing arts or in music or really in anything is, um, I mean, in my opinion, a a bad place to come from as long as you're recognizing it. Um, and as long as you are, um, serving, like serving yourself in a way that, um, is not detrimental to other people. I mean, ego is something that I, at this point in my life, I feel like I'm really finally starting to learn about what it actually is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not like boastful. No. You know, it's not like bragging and, and, you know, being over the top or anything like that. Right. It's knowing like who you are. Yes. Yes. It's like a strength and resolve in knowing who you are. And, and, and I mean, if you're in good relationship with your ego, you're, you're open to it. Yeah. At peace with it, mm -hmm. working with it, wrestling with it, all of those things. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like a performer has to have an ego. 
you have to perform in relationship with your ego. You, mm-hmm. you can't not. It'd be empty if there was no ego. Mm-hmm. And I think we, as a culture, really reward the excesses of of ego. But that's not to say that you know that's the the basis of doing things is wrong or bad. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That um, idea of the ego, though. Again, I'm going to talk about my experience uh, as a classical musician. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, especially when I was attending the conservatory here in town for grad school. Um, there was um, a greater push to tamp down ego than there was a push to encourage the development of ego. Why? Like, and what would that look like? Um, again, I'm going to use the word dogmatic. Sure. Uh, because part of, I mean, not even part, like almost all of what you learn when you're being trained as a classical pianist is... Uh, how to interpret the great works properly. Okay. It's a bit like being a Shakespearean actor. Right, right. Um, and so if you dare to do something unconventional... So you're kind of camouflaging yourself to try to be as true to the source material. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, if you, if you do it, um, if you interpret well, you can still interpret and interpret in your own personalized creative way mm-hmm. um, but if if the uh, faculty felt that you had stepped too far beyond what was appropriate interpretation you would be properly stomped upon really? <laughs> like okay. it was, they would stop you yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, and not all the faculty were like that. It would, it, it depended on who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but definitely there was this sense of, of like, um, sure, sure. Ego is important, but don't let it get in the way of accurate mm-hmm. and authentic interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So going from, so you went from a small town in Minnesota, um, and where did you do your undergrad? The University of Kansas. Okay. In um, Topeka? Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, I grew up for a time in Wichita, so. Oh, you're kidding. Mm -hmm. How long were you there? When were you there? Kindergarten to fourth grade. So, like, a chunk of my, my like, childhood that I can remember that. Like, Wichita, Wichita? Wichita. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, Wichita, Wichita. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, And so you did, and so you studied piano performance? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there's a school of music there. Cool. And then you um, went, is that how you ended up in Cincinnati? You went to the conservatory at CCM? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I went to CCM um, to get my master's and my doctorate. Okay. So you got your, your master's and your doctorate doctorate mm-hmm. um, in piano performance? Yep. Everything oh. in piano performance. Um, and you've, uh, when was that? When, when did you get your doctorate? I came here in 2009 and I finished my doctorate in 2014. Okay. Um, and so you've you've been in Cincinnati ever since. Yeah. Teaching uh, yeah. at Wilmington. Yeah. And teaching private yes. uh, lessons. I've been teaching private lessons cool. the whole time I've been here. Um, so going back, and and I want to um, use this kind of in a, in a two part question. Mm-hmm. What was the first like classical, or I, I we don't even need to classify it like that. What was the first piece of music that you like listened to and um, felt? Overwhelmed by. Overwhelmed. Oh 
my gosh. I don't... What do you mean when you say overwhelming? Yeah, because I'm thinking about it. Um, I mean, like, you had... It sounds like from an early age, like, had such, like, a mass... Like, an ear and, like, a mastery of technique. But Uh. for me, like, emotion... Like, music is really powerful to me when, like, it overwhelms me emotionally. Yeah. And um, technique or other considerations like genre whatever are like secondary and I'm just like clued into whatever is like that magical like glowing center of it does that make sense yes um yes so was there ever something that like when you heard like transcended technique transcended like the form of it and just like spoke to you like emotionally oh my gosh um I am I I have a really weird way of remembering music. Okay. Um in that I have actually very few specific musical memories. Mm. Um I can talk to you about um how I have always used music as a tool for my own expression um and the kinds of music that has connected that I've connected with yeah. really deeply. Yeah. Because you were you just described how for you the most important aspect of a music or a musical experience is that it's an emotional experience. Yeah, I wouldn't say the most important. The, the the it's the like um, talking about like musical memories. It's like my like musical like touchstones, right? Yes. Where um, it's 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 it's. it's tied to memory more than it is um i would say like an enjoyment of the piece yeah. or, or or something like that right but i can like remember back like oh that was like the first time like i heard this mm-hmm. and it, then i realized that like music could do this right i i, I realized yeah. that like um this is may sound really dumb but in a song like that you can edit voices so like you can record like uh, one vocal track and then like the other one just like starting just as the other one's finishing it. Yeah. Like when I first like heard that and realized that like that's not what human voices can actually do. <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that so, helps but, me think of yeah, the but, 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 but you know, going back to you, yeah. What um, what is your like relationship to? Or you said you you. Um, remember music in a weird way okay so so you work as a therapist of sorts yeah right? okay yeah like are you what are, are you a social worker so yeah i'm a social worker so i, I have okay. two jobs so i work um at a non-profit called strategies to end homelessness uh designing uh programs to help address youth homelessness uh-huh. and then on the side i'm a family therapist okay mm-hmm. so I imagine part of what you do with people sometimes is you talk to them about their feelings. Very much so. And oftentimes people who struggle to speak about their feelings are better at talking about how they feel things in their body. 100%. And that is me to a T. I'm really bad. I'm really bad at figuring out how I'm feeling, but I can tell you like how things are going in my body. Mm -hmm. And that's how music works for Mm. me. Like it's, it's all about like, okay, well right now my shoulders feel tight because I'm hearing these crazy sounds over here or right now 
um, I feel a tightness in my throat because the music is making me want to cry and I don't know why. Mm. Okay. Or I feel totally relaxed or I feel like I want to move to this like crazy rhythm or whatever it is. It's all about how it hits me physically. And so when I'm performing, that's what I'm expressing. Not so much like, um, an, uh, an intellectual concept and not so much like a specific emotional idea. I'm expressing this like physical journey. It's almost like dancing. Right. Um, and so the musical experiences that I think were really important to me were, ex- were experiences where I could feel that and I could sense music having that power over me. So a few examples that I can think of, um, of like, sort of moments where I was didn't realize music could do that like you said um I rem- I will never forget the first time I heard um Bohemian Rhapsody in in stereo oh wow <laughs> <laughs> like we were we it's were it was just on the radio yeah. you know and we were in our car and so you could hear like the front and back yeah like other things like yes somebody behind me <laughs> yes yeah, yeah yeah um and it I mean like it's kind of cliche and cheesy now, but when I was when I was a kid, that was like, I I God, I just remember after the song was over, I was, I wanted to hear it again. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a really that was a really cool moment. Um, and I I think because it's that it was that physical experience, like you're immersed completely in the sound and you're living in a sound world rather than just listening like through your ears. Um, the experience I mentioned earlier of going to see the orchestra for the mm-hmm. first time. So the hall that the Minnesota Orchestra plays in is actually a really remarkable hall acoustically um, because it's one of those halls that's a straight shot back. Mm. Like it's a shoebox mm-hmm. shape. And that's actually... Um, I, most acousticians or whatever the word is agree that that's one of the best places to hear classical music is in a shoebox shaped hall because however the acoustics work in there you get completely immersed mm. um so i couldn't tell you what they were playing that day i think it was beethoven mm-hmm. but what i do remember is the feeling in my body of just swimming in this gorgeous orchestra sound and it was like i just wanted to stay there forever you know um, then if like, because, because like the reason you're talking to me is because I make weird sounds with the piano. So we got to get there somehow. <laughs> well, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, I also remember some of the first times I ever heard, um, classical music that was not uh, traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an undergrad, my, um, uh, studio teacher in undergrad was an expert in George Crumb. Um, Not familiar. Oh my gosh! Oh, this is so exciting. Yeah, there's a whole world of like classical music that I just like. You don't know so George Crumb? <gasps> yeah. I'm so excited yeah, for you because now you get to learn about George Crumb. Tell me about George Crumb. Oh my god! Okay, so George Crumb is this great composer. He's still alive, um, and he lives um, like in the mountains in West Virginia. And he um, writes this beautiful, spiritual, mystical music. Like, he has an entire piece of music where every movement explores a different sign of the zodiac and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and when he writes for the piano, he uses all these gorgeous extended techniques to try to get more resonance and to try to get more sort of um, unearthly sounds out of the piano. Um, and so my teacher was performing this set of pieces for solo piano um, where he had to do things like 
um, draw a chain across the strings of the piano um, or take a glass and scrape it on the strings or mute some of the strings and get some of the harmonics out of the strings of the piano. All these kinds of things. At one point you have to sing into the piano, you know, um, and like get this sort of uh, sympathetic resonances that are in there. And, and, and I was just my mind exploded (laughs) when I saw him do that. And it was, it was completely life-changing because it was, it wasn't just, um, like this hokey kind of like gimmicky. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, um, the sounds that you were making, he was making in that piece, I felt them physically, you know? It wasn't just a mental exercise to listen to the music. You didn't have to just think like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You could feel it. It was expressive. It was, it made me move, you know? And, and God, I loved that. Yeah. And, and, and hearing him do that, I knew I wanted to do something like that too, eventually. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when I think of, um, like prepared piano and extended technique and, um, and stuff like that. I, it, it switches a different part of the way that I listen to music. It's, it's more of like an intellectual, um, I'm, I'm trying to parse out like, um, all of the different sounds and and the way that they're different than they would if they were just played straight on, on a piano. So it's, it's in- incredibly engaging for me intellectually. I don't feel like that same sort of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested. So, you know, you, you said that's the way that you, um, that you, that you feel music, the, what it does to you, um, in your body. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine like my mind goes to, okay, like Aaron Copeland, right. Or like, you know, like Beethoven, like these big swelling grand pieces of music like i i get that mm-hmm. but when you are say like playing stockhausen or listening to some of these like like avant-garde 20th century composers um that do a lot of this like extended technique and um uh like prepared piano stuff what what is happening to you? Like what's, what is going, what's going on that can engage you in that way, as opposed to just strictly like a mental intellectual exercise of this is a very, this is a very interesting deconstruction of mm-hmm. music. Um, I mean, it is important and possible for me to appreciate music on in a more heady way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not what I love about music. Um, I will say with 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 some of those composers who um, seem to strike the intellectual realm first, mm-hmm. um, even with them, I still can have this kind of experience that we've been talking yeah. about. Um, and what it, that kind of music helps me access is is um, almost like a in the inhuman feelings that are possible. Like it's oh my gosh, how can I explain it? There there are certain places that I can go within myself when I hear that kind of music, physically speaking. Mm-hmm that would be completely inaccessible and I wouldn't even be aware of them if I okay. wasn't listening to that kind of music. I'm so curious as to... Um, 
I've never tried to put this into words before. Well, maybe you can't, but I'd be really interested to hear <sighs> it's, you try. Um, uh, well, one word that comes to mind is, is a feeling of, of tension. Um, typically in our day-to-day lives, if we feel tension, our immediate reaction is to do whatever we can to alleviate it. Exactly. Yeah. Escape it as much as we can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, and listening, listening to, to some of this, um, music that you're alluding to, um, like Stockhausen can be this way or like some of the early 12 tone music and stuff like this, like you're forced to sit in your in the tension um and you go on a journey within the tension and so you just get to know it really 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 well and i don't think that i would ever do that if i wasn't listening to music like it it's it it, for me it's almost like a safe space to explore kind of some of those Mm -hmm. scarier feelings Mm -hmm. and also beyond that um some of the the tension um, connects to th- these kinds of feelings that um, I don't even know how to explain it without sounding a little go for it uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it, a little inhuman you know it's, it's, it takes me to places that I would never allow myself to go mm. um I'm going to sound like a huge nerd right now when I say this next thing, but I've been watching Battlestar Galactica recently. The uh, original or the reboot? Um, like the 2000s or the, the 2000s, 70s? The okay. 2000s, right? And so, like, the whole story with this TV show is that there's um, a race of humanoid people who are part machine and part we don't know what. And I do feel like sometimes when I listen to Stockhausen or something like that, I'm dialing into somewhere in my brain that's more machine-like rather than mm. human. Um, and it's fun to live there. It's like interesting to do that. That is really fascinating. I, I definitely um, can um, go there with you um, to the point of like... Um, listening to something and in, and getting some sort of um, reaction to it because of the tension and sort of settling in and really sort of like riding that wave and um, yeah, just settling in on that. I think I'm, I'm also drawn to like extremes of that. Um, so like extreme dissonance, um, extreme volume. Um, yeah. So like, I was, like I, don't listen to but like i uh in, enjoy uh, uh, uh noise music you, you know like yeah you know, um there like that is the closest i think that i've ever felt to like maybe what you described where you just feel it just in your body um more than anything and um yeah uh yeah and and it, and it really i mean it, it for me like listening to like the extreme version of that it's a very cleansing like feeling mm-hmm. um to kind of uh nestle into like those really really deep dark parts of you um and just feeling like uh it's in some ways like your ability to like withstand it has sort of like exercised it mm-hmm. in a way. Um, not like that it's gone, but like you don't, 
maybe need to go go back there for a little while. Yeah. My most recent life-changing musical experience was at the No Response oh, this year. Oh, my God. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, Whoa. yeah. I don't remember the names of anybody I saw, but, like, oh, my God. It was amazing. KG Hino's set, um, which I think was, like, the last yeah. performance. Yeah, the last thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, was the most perfect piece, uh, like, performance I've ever seen. Um, how it started with just, like, this really kind of, like, this very interesting, kind of pretty, like, uh, uh, guitar line. And then, um, you know, just, like, blossomed into this, like, the loudest and most intense thing I've ever experienced. I, like, I laughed. Like, I cried. <laughs> I fell asleep. <laughs> Which is, like, an amazing... Because, like, my... Like, my... Like, my... It was an hour-long set. And, like, I got to the point where my body's just, like, we're shutting it down. It? Like, no yeah. more inputs for you. Like, yeah. we just, like... We just need to, like, shut it down for a little while. And, um... Yeah, it was such, like, all those performances, but, like, that one in particular, like, just was one of, like, the most moving things I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. I um, didn't have um, earplugs with me. Oh, my God. And so I stayed inside the theater as long as they could mm-hmm. for that set because I like the minute he started you knew that you were witnessing oh my God, something yeah, yeah. like he just it was just his presence on stage and then and then I, yeah, I stayed as long as I could and at a certain point I had to go outside and listen because like my ears literally couldn't take but that, it but outside was amazing yeah it was beautiful it was yeah. still beautiful yeah oh my god I would sometimes um just go outside and just open the door yeah. Because <laughs> I wanted to, like, yeah. I wanted, <laughs> like, I was, like, possessed. But, like, I wanted to, like, like, let it out. Like, I wanted, yes! I wanted it to, like, go into There was Cincinnati. that much. It was a physical yeah. force. Yeah. Absolutely. It could only, like, I felt like it only could take that much. I was, like, relieving the pressure a little bit. And, like, yeah. Like, letting it go out into Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I've experienced noise shows before, but that particular show, it was like something I didn't know was possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were exposed to, um, so so George Crumb? Yeah. Was that like the first um, composer that you've been exposed to that was doing some of these like extended techniques and stuff like that? Yes, that I can remember. Uh Yeah. And um, what what gravitated you like? What made you want to like do that yourself, or or experiment in some of those modes? (laughs) Um, That is a couple a couple reasons. Um, It first of all, I just like that it was different. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always kind of liked the weird stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. and so, yeah, it just it felt like something kind of different. It also, um, beyond being different, it, was, it really felt rebellious to mm. me because heaven forbid you would ever touch the strings of the piano. Right. Um, and it, here was my teacher, like just banging away inside the piano, and it looked really fun. It yeah. was. I mean, at that point, I had I had known the piano for for eighteen years. It had been a part of my life, you know. And so, and so, after eighteen years of knowing something, and you discover this is there's whole a whole other exactly part of it, like yes. beyond the keys, or like this whole other world. Yes, I was, and it, yeah, it was like a, a new toy or something. Yeah, that's I was awesome. So excited about that, and also, I think another reason that I was drawn to doing that kind of thing is because in the classical music world, stuff like George Crumb is given the title of new music. Mm. 
um, which is a really stupid way to term any kind of um, stylistic inclinations <laughs> because it's not Googleable even a little bit. Sure. I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag new music is going to bring up a bunch of like SoundCloud brats. Right, right, right. You know, right. like it's. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, new music in the realm of, of the classical music world is kind of like this beautiful band of, of misfits who, who have um, discovered something other than the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that every genre has this, right? The indie or the alternative mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And, and that's what new music is in the classical music realm. And for me, someone who didn't grow up in the traditional classical music training, um, who, like I mentioned before, like was very thinly exposed to classical music prior to going to college. Hmm. I always felt a little out of place. Felt I definitely felt like the misfit. Um, and so finding something where I could strike my own path um, and be kind of on equal footing with everybody else rather than constantly being behind these other oh, people, yeah. it, it really made me feel like it was the right thing for me to be doing. Yeah. And is that kind of... Um is that kind of seen as like rebellious, like that kind of like, like mu- like playing yeah. that kind of music in a conservatory environment, like sort of like a rebellious thing? Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, um, this is this, you're not going to believe this, but so, um, when you audition for music school, you're required to play a, a piece of music from, um, every stylistic period so you're you're required to play a piece of music from for piano it starts um in the baroque period so you play a baroque piece you play a classical piece you play a romantic piece and then the fourth category is usually listed as contemporary Mm. which because we're talking about post-romantic that implies anything after freaking 1895 could be considered contemporary Okay, so so composers like Debussy. Yeah, yeah, that's satisfy that requirement. Really? Wow. Okay, like that Prokofiev or Shostakovich is considered to be modern and considered to be edgy mm. and dissonant and and groundbreaking. Um, like you, you'll hear a piece from from 1915 on a piano concert, and people be like, "Oh, that was new and different," mm. because it's it's mostly just Chopin and yeah, Beethoven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, new music is definitely considered rebellious. In fact, some people, um, some piano teachers, in, won't even allow their students to play new music because they don't consider it to be the same art form. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like this, this, I mean, I've talked to you so much about technique and being trained as a craftsman, but when I'm working in, in, um, some of the new music that I play, I don't use any of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, and is that, uh, is that a, is that a freeing experience? Is that, um, is that like, what does that do to you? Like, um, approaching something and, and not, you know, uh, relying on like those like tech, technical mm-hmm. skills that you've developed your entire life? Um, it can be the most deeply frustrating experience, and it can also simultaneously be extremely freeing um, because I get to leave the craftsman realm and I get to go into the artist realm. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, 
yeah, when you can't rely on your technique, all you can rely on is your ear and your creativity. Um, and that's, it's a good feeling if it works. <laughs> so you've left sort of the, the workshop and, and now you're like the quarterback of some atonal, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> completely improvised football team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're making awesome. up the game as we go along. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, like sometimes it's really great and really fun and you discover these new things about yourself and about your um, creativity. And at other times it is so frustrating Mm. because what I've trained my whole life is to be able to hear something in my head first and then make it come out of the instrument. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And And if someone writes something for me that I can hear but I can't make the sound happen... It is so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's going to be hard because like, I feel like a lot of that um, is uh, at first glance, like imprecise, like dragging a chain across, you know, the, the piano strings. Like, oh, anybody can do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you get some sort of sound. But like to do that in the way that it's like meant to be and to like get like the max amount of resonance, like resonance out of like that. I bet that can be extremely challenging because there's no years of practicing of like dragging a chain. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, using the most challenging technique I've had to work on recently is using an Ebo on the piano strings. Mm. Did you do that um, during the response project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The the piece that Ari Shu wrote for me, um, I have to use an ebo on some of the strings, and she she is an amazing um, pianist herself. When it, especially when it comes, I mean, just in general, but mm-hmm. especially when it comes to ex- extended techniques, she um, is one of those pianists who will sit down with a bunch of like doodads and and improvise <laughs> yeah. this incredible piece um, and so she has all these really cool techniques with the ebo where she'll um, have me place it halfway on the string or kind of lightly on the string and then touch the top of it to get a nice little buzz mm-hmm. um, and move it from string to string really quickly and things like that um, and I've, I've learned a lot from her about how to use an ebo properly I'm just going to turn the oh yeah it's, it's gotten, I think, considerably darker since yes. talking. Um, so tell me about the response projects. So you've done two. Three. Three. Okay. Yes. So tell me about your response projects. Okay. I'm, I'm aware. I'm, I'm probably aware of three. But So tell me about them. So um, the response project, the general idea is to take a pre-existing um, work of art or idea and ask artists to respond individually with their own uh, abstract interpretation or response to that pre-existing thing. So I have done the response project in three separate phases. The first phase was a response to Caroline Stockhausen's piece, Microphony One. Um, do you want to hear about that piece? Yeah, tell me. Okay, so... Um, that piece, Microphone One, is from 1964. It's a groundbreaking electroacoustic work written for six players um, and one really big tam tam. Um, and the players, uh, two players, um, use household objects to tap, scrape, 
whatever on the tam-tam. Two more players have microphones and they either catch the sounds from the household objects in the microphones or sometimes they use the microphones as percussive objects themselves. And then the final two players are using um, bandpass filters to manipulate those sounds which are then sent out into the performance hall. Um, In order to uh, notate this work, Stockhausen not only had to be playful enough to come up with all of these sounds, um, but he also had to be playful enough to find a way to um, notate them so that the performance could be reproduced. So he invented a a new system of Mm. notation just for the performance of that piece. So all kinds of playfulness and creativity happening with Microphony One. Even the title, I love the title, it combines microphone and symphony. Nice. It's like tying together the electronic realm and the acoustic realm. Um, And so I wanted um, composers and other artists to respond to that feeling of playfulness Mm -hmm. and combining of electronic and acoustic for the piano. So I had five works for piano, a few of the composers integrated electronics, and then I had... Um, a visual artist, Lizzie Duquette from here in mm-hmm. Cincinnati, she created some artwork and um, Aaron Strasser made a cocktail. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was the, that was that one. The second one um, was called On Behalf. Okay. Yeah. I've, I have that CD. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would totally give you a copy of the Stockhausen one, but I'm all out. I oh, can't, I'm congrats. like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was surprised by that the other day. Um, yeah. So on behalf, the uh, phrase for on behalf <clears throat> was drawn from an interview I saw online between Killer Mike and Stephen Colbert, where. Because Killer Mike, especially at the time, was really big into the Black Lives Matter movement, Stephen Colbert was like, hey, let's have a conversation, and you speak on behalf of all black people, and I'll speak on behalf of all white people. <laughs> and right, it's fun. It's a funny mm-hmm. idea, yeah. but actually the conversation that they had was like insightful and mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, that's really interesting. What would happen if I took that idea of on behalf and handed it to artists and let them do with it what they want? So we had... Seven composers writing for violin and piano. Um, And then Chase Public uh, helped me um, put together a set of non-musician artists to also respond. So, like, Scott Holtzman wrote a poem. Travis McElroy did, like, a comedic monologue. We had a dancer. We had a photographer. We had a sculptor. Um, Yeah. So that's that's what came together. And then the third one was the one that just happened this past November, yep. which is um, a bunch of different responses to Bob Dylan's album, Highway 61 Revisited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, going to, like, focusing on, um, on behalf, um, <laughs> the who did the musicians speak or respond on behalf of? Mm-hmm. Was, was that the idea that they are mm-hmm. responding on behalf of... Like, um, like a like a group or a subpopulation or like something like that. Some of like them chose to race. go that way, okay. And some of them just responded to the idea itself. Oh, okay. Um, one of the um, composers wrote a two movement work where one of the movements was on behalf of his maternal grandmother and mm. the other was on behalf of his paternal grandmother. Um, it was interesting because they represent two very different sort of socio-economic political realms. 
um, but they're both his grandmothers. So that kind of came together in a really beautiful way. Um, on the far other end of things, there was a composer who wrote a piece of music. Now I'm gonna, I don't ever remember the complete exact title, but it was on behalf of the failure to create collaborations that are truly equal because of inherent privileges that are impossible to erase. Mm. That was the title, something wow. like yeah. that. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was uh, the sort of like broken conversation between the violinist and myself attempting to create some sort of collaboration and ultimately coming up short <laughs> because each of our instruments had in the writing for the instrument had privileges and disadvantages built into the writing that made it impossible for us to come together. Um, and then we had all kinds of things in between. So is that, um, something that is important to you is, um, also using music as a vehicle, um, to create some sort of social change? That is a really complicated idea for me because music is an art form. Actually, I'm pretty sure most art forms are this way. Once you create it and it's out there, you really don't have control over it. Um, And so you can have the intention of creating social change, but you don't know that that's what's going to happen. So for me as a performer and as someone who doesn't write music myself, but I I ask people to write music for me, I, I would love for the music to, to um, lead my audiences to consider things in a new way. Um, but I don't ever deliberately try to take control of that process. Um, I just try really hard in my programming to be as diverse as possible, to be as open as possible. Um, and like to deliberately make sure that I'm, in, um, including voices that are not usually included in a classical music context. Um, and so, and so like in that, in those senses, I can be, um, uh, working for social change, but yeah, definitely. I don't really see that the music could ever directly create some sort of change mm-hmm. in a deliberate sense. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in the idea that if you're open to listening to weird stuff, you're going to be open-minded to other yeah. ideas too. Yeah, that's that's true until you like discover like the white power, you know, like analog of you know what you're creating. You know, like I've like I, I I've you know I've I've held that too, and then like realizing that there's like these like bizarro you know worlds where. Um, yeah, it, music that you wouldn't if if you weren't sort of attuned to some of those messages or who was creating it mm-hmm. um, would miss some of those very subtle, um, but to some people very overt like political, like uh, kind of like pings, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, I um, I think that's I think that's really interesting, and I, I think you're completely right. Is that you know once we um, once we send something that we've created out into the world, you know, we, we no longer have ownership of it, but I wonder, um, do you, um, can music be apolitical? Uh, everything's political. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I mean, I don't really mean to say that music is apolitical. Um, it's just more that 
I, I'm not going to fool myself into thinking I have more control. Oh, okay. So I, yeah, I think, I think we're, we, we, yeah, maybe operating under two different things. So like social change, you have, you don't have control over Mm -hmm. what somebody does or, or collectively do because they hear something or they're inspired by something really has no control over us. But in your, um, what you do have control over in terms of like your programming Mm -hmm. and, um, deciding who to highlight and who to, um, and also the framing in which, you know, you, you, you present something, you, you give artists the opportunity to respond to is inherently political. Yes. Would you say? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. Um, the way in which I, I, uh, went about creating the list of artists, um, for this last response project, the Bob Dylan, um, and the way in which I presented that project, uh, was deliberately, um, I guess political is the word. I was really definitely trying to be socially aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even the reason why I picked that album in the first place was a political reason. Yeah. What was that reason? Um, so that album is, uh, from, oh, I always mix this up. 1964, or 1965. I always mix that up. <laughs> anyway, mid sixties, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> he, um, Bob Dylan, um, you know, it's the first album he recorded after his infamous appearance at the Newport Folk mm-hmm. Festival, and so like he was going rock and roll, but um, even beyond that, he was like creating this very personal um, portrait. Uh, through his lyrics, but um, the portrait that he creates of his life is through this like cast of characters. Um, all these different little weird circus freaks who like float in and out of the poetry. Um, and the things that they're going through are so very of the times. They're so very mid-1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think that that uh, especially like if you look at the lyrics for Desolation Row, the last track, like he captures them in 1960s. People were scared. Mm-hmm. Um, my fifth grade teacher, I'll never forget when she described the civil rights movement to us because she lived through it as a young adult. She said that she really thought that the civil rights movement, there was going to be uh, another civil war because it was just so uncertain and violent and scary and and things were changing so fast. Um, and you really got a sense of like good versus evil yeah. <laughs> in this country. And and um, because you feel that so much in that album, I thought, what better thing to respond to in 2018 than that? You know, like, because we're, we were coming off of, off of the election of Donald Trump and, and all this like crazy resurgence of, of, of white power and hate mm-hmm. crimes and... And, and, and I thought, yeah, it'd be the perfect. So, um, yeah, that was absolutely a political choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who I asked to respond to it, uh, um, I specifically chose some of them because they had knew nothing about Bob Dylan. And so they could respond to it with like fresh eyes. Mm. Um, and some of them, I, I asked them to do it because they knew everything about Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And so they could dive in really deep. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, um, the way that we presented the project, like everything was um, free and open to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the idea being, again, like whoever wants to engage with this and be in conversation with this can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that was a political choice also. Totally. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's impossible to, um, I mean, yeah, make choices that aren't inherently political. And I, and I feel like um, classical music is often seen as this... Um, uh, like belonging to kind of like a mm-hmm. like socioeconomic class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of the people who um, enjoy it. <laughs> um, I think there's like this, like uh, I think there's this kind of like myth of like you know like people who go to the orchestra for their entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who play it um, often, you, you kind of think of like this conservatory track, you know, that they were on if they weren't like some amazing prodigy that was plucked out of obscurity they were sort of like funneled into this like very competitive very um like parent involved Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know track into Mm -hmm. into doing that Mm -hmm. and um i i just i mean i think those response projects are amazing you know reactions to that as well as like a broadening um of not only what music can be because i think um especially playing uh like prepared piano and and um exposing people to that can have that sort of shifting uh Mm -hmm. reaction where it's just like i didn't know (laughs) that you could call this music you know like Mm -hmm. i thought this was just neat sounds (laughs) you know and yeah um but then also like um making it as accessible as possible i think is a really cool response to like what i think people think of of like classical music and classical performances Thanks. Yeah, I was I I really enjoyed it. I I and I loved both aspects of it. I loved um the super nerdy like breaking like I can't remember that one guy's name, but he like broke down like this like one line of the song like the lyrics and like mm-hmm. the notes and like well, maybe what he was talking you know what are you trying to do was this and, like <laughs> and then <laughs> then like the complete like free responses to like you know. Um, you, like you said, like some people like really had no like connection to Bob Dylan, but like created these like musical responses. Yeah, yeah. I um, <clears throat> every time I perform these days, especially when I'm performing music that comes out of the response project, I always at the beginning of the concert give people permission to not like the music. Totally. Um. It's a really important thing um, because because I mean, if you if you if if the average Joe walks into a concert hall and sees uh, someone sitting at a grand piano, what do you you have expectations yeah, of what you're going to hear? Yep. Mm-hmm. Like you think you're either going to hear beautiful, lush, romantic, classical music, or you're going to hear some kind of jazz, mm-hmm. or you're going to, maybe you'll hear like Jerry Lee Lewis kind of stuff. Right. But that's it. Yep. Um, and, and so, and so like I, by giving people permission not to like it, then it, it hits a switch in their brain and it doesn't have to fit into anything. Anymore. Right, right, right. They can just say, oh, what is this? Yeah, and they can think critically about it instead of like, oh, this is, 
you, you know, like there's like the, this expectation that you're supposed to like this and what's wrong with you. Yeah. You, you're not getting it. Yeah. But another, and another part of it too is, is the difference between, um, appreciating something and enjoying something. Mm. Like, like I really enjoy listening to Ariana Grande. Mm-hmm. Okay. It feels good. It does. Yeah. (laughs) It's a pleasurable experience. Most of the time. Um, (laughs) But it, I, um, when I'm listening to, I don't know, like some dissonant avant-garde electronic, whatever it is, it's not necessarily pleasurable. I don't necessarily enjoy it, but I appreciate what I'm gaining from that experience. Mm-hmm. It's it's a different level. And it's amazing how um unless you like live in this weird musician world uh for a while, the difference between those two things is often not parsed out for people. Mm. Um and so that's the another reason why I give people permission not to like something is because then they can, like you said, listen critically and just see what the experience is like right. without being freaked out that they're not enjoying it. Right. Yeah. There's something defective about them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. exactly right. Or they, they don't belong to this like socioeconomic class that like appreciates this kind of thing. Cause it's right. art. Uh, some of my favorite concerts, especially like booking experimental, um, concerts is, um, getting the, um, like getting the negative, not negative reactions, but just like getting the <laughs> reactions that aren't just like, you know, uh, s- standing with your arms crossed and clapping politely. Um, <laughs> there's been a couple that I just love, um, where this, and like, I, I could like empathize so much with this girl. It was at Rake's End and like, there's just like this, you know, harsh noise show playing. And this, this like girl was like, she was trying so hard to figure out what was going on because she could not place it in anything because there's some guy like just standing there just like turning a knob and then like (laughs) and then like standing back and then like going over and turning like another knob and like listening while this like harsh dissonance just like you know came from it and she was like legitimately asking people like what why do you like this no 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 why do you like this uh, and, and like most people were just like like brushing her off or just like you know like giving like a um you know, like uh, like a non-committal answer like oh like my friend is my friend playing or something like that and like i i, I kick myself for like not enthusiastically like you know, being like, because this is so weird, you know, like, this is like, this hurts my ears, but like, I, um, I love that, like, you know, this is happening right now. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think back to that, I'm like, man, that like, that response is better than like most of like the listening experiences that I've observed. Right. Because it's not like, she's not like blindly hating something. She just like wants to know, she wants to know why are, why are you standing here mm-hmm. doing something that seems ostensibly very painful? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. What am I missing? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. What is happening here? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I haven't I seen the light up. I was worried that I ran out of batteries. No, hey, we're good. Oh, man. Um, we've gone for like an hour and 15 minutes. This is, uh, or 12 minutes, 13 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. This has been a really good conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I really appreciated um, 
uh, hearing how music, how you hear music. Um, I think that is one of the most fascinating things to learn about somebody is how they, how they hear and, and how they experience music. Totally. Yeah. It's been fun to talk to you. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>